to What in the World Language Podcast. I am here today with Mike Mena. Welcome to the show, Mike. Hey, man. Thanks for having me. It's so gonna we're going to be fun. Oh, I hope so, man. So we're going we're gonna to have a broad conversation today. Um, we're going to touch on a lot of different topics. Um, but first, I'd like you to introduce yourself. Tell us who you are. Okay, sure thing. Here we go with the mandatory smart people introduction. Oh, yes. <laughs> Definitely okay, smart so, person. Oh, well, you know, well, people say things, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so my name's Mike Mena. I guess I'm supposed to say uh, I'm a linguistic anthropologist, PhD candidate studying race and language in higher education. But oh, gosh, to this day, I still get really embarrassed talking about institutional degrees like i can just see my friends just rolling their eyes fall their eyes are rolling so hard they're just following oh he wants to be called a doctor (laughs) yeah exactly um i i guess i'm also a so-called academic youtuber um so if you haven't checked it out the channel is called the social life of language um it's it's basically a language-centered channel on YouTube, language and race. And basically, I designed it for students like me needing help in theory classes. Um, at the time, I was just really struggling in school. I was like, wow, these um, old YouTube videos on social theory are either like way too simplistic or they are just two-hour-long snooze fest lectures, <laughs> nonstop PowerPoint <laughs> presentations. Right. Oh my God. So unhel- so unhelpful to me, you know? Um, so I just challenged myself and I said, I'm going to do lectures without PowerPoints and in the easiest language possible. Mm-hmm. And I want to prove that you can talk about academic stuff without this so-called academic language, this so-called standard language. Um, yeah, so that's so that's me, PhD candidate, musician, YouTuber. Uh, maybe you can throw in photography, photographer in there somewhere. Okay, um, okay. I wear a lot of hats. I, I, do, I do some things. You do, I some, do things. some things. You're involved yeah, in yeah. some stuff. Yeah, right. I yeah. do some stuff. You do some stuff. Well, that's amazing. And it's your. I I came about discovering you. You like that? I discovered Mike. <laughs> discovering your YouTube channel and it's just amazing because I have an I'm I am a Spanish teacher um by trade um uh, it's what I do and I'm always interested in you know sort of uh, translanguaging ratio linguistics linguistics um so you know not exactly sure how I stumbled upon your channel but probably Twitter um mm-hmm. and I fell in love with it and you really do uh for those of us that are not immersed in that that field um you do use simplistic uh, language. To, it's approachable, mm-hmm. and it is not because I have tried to sit through those two-hour YouTube lectures with the PowerPoint, <laughs> and I'm just like about thirty minutes in. I'm just like, this is deep, but I can't do it. You know? Yeah, I was just like, I, I know something smart is happening right now, <laughs> but I kind of stopped paying attention Stop. like twenty minutes ago. Right. And, uh, but let me just nod my head along. Like, that, that's how I felt in class most of the time. Right. This like, is yeah. what my students feel like when I'm talking endlessly. <laughs> Something good's coming out of his mouth, but I'm I'm, I'm, I'm losing it. He's, I'm at an advantage because I look cool. Right. So I, I, I'll just right. always play that. You know, the, you know, students think yeah. I look cool. So yeah, they're like, like, oh, yeah, Mike's cool, man. 
<laughs> just, you just look at him. He'll do something crazy. Like me, I'll just randomly jump on a desk uh, in my classroom. Like just yeah, why not? Crazy and uh, why not? You know, it's the antics, man. <laughs> <laughs> got to sell this somehow. We got to do what we got to do. Yeah. But um, so yeah. Um, what is the what's your motto? Like you say, simplistic something something. What, tell us what. Making social theory simple but never simplified. That's there it. we go. That's the that's, that's the brand. That's never simplified. Yeah, and that was just it was basically just don't be condescending. You know, don't don't be like those teachers that are just like, oh, you you don't say ways in which every other you know sentence. Ways. So that means you're <laughs> that that means you're not an academic if you don't say ways in which ways all the in time. which we approach language and its ideologies. You know. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's a YouTube. Voice. Yeah, there's a YouTube channel that's called the ways in which and i think it's just a parody of that phrase oh wow you know yeah <laughs> it's I'm, pretty funny i'm making a note of that i'm gonna go <laughs> yeah <laughs> the ways in which parody so i want to jump right in this conversation by discussing uh your video that you have up on your channel and mm -hmm. i do encourage my listeners to go um check his channel out it's amazing uh make yourself a cup of coffee or tea or get you some water or if you're into green juices whatever and uh mm -hmm. sit down and enjoy um, he's got, he's got many places to start from. So I want to jump into this by discussing one of your videos from Flores and Rosa, Undoing Appropriateness, Ratio-Linguistic Ideologies, right? That's the title. So where you discuss ratio-linguistics, the white gaze and perception, and how in education we tend to separate these ideas of race and language as two separate, and I'm air quoting here, things, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. how can we unpack these ideas for educators, like that simplistic language, right? Uh, mm -hmm. And how does this standard or absolute language belief manifest itself in teachers' pedagogy and everyday practices, right? And perhaps move towards some strategies that seek to honor what language practices our students bring into the classroom. So you right. may want to you may want to like do some definitions here, brief definitions of what those terms are. Wow, yeah. So so we're we're going deep. We're going deep right the off way. the bat, man. All the way in there. Um, yeah. So there's a there's a lot of concepts, a lot of moving concepts that we have to deal with. Mm. Racial linguistics. I mean, right there, we're talking about race and language right. as emerging or emergent historical concepts that cannot be separated, um, but Part of a part of racial linguistic ideologies is exactly that treating language and race as separate entities, and so first off, the, to me, the most difficult thing to address is convincing people that race and language, or the thing we call a language, is not a thing that is. It's not like something that sits on our desk. It's not a coffee cup. It's not a computer monitor. You know, when I speak to educators and students, I I try to use metaphors all the time. And you see this in my channel too. Mm. I'll say I'll say let's think of a thing that's like a more spacey type of thing, like a measurement of time, like the thing we call a day or a week or a year. Mm. All of those things exist as a product of knowledge. So in, so time, like race, like language, these are all products of knowledge. We had all these historical decisions being made by people in scientific institutions who decided, hey, you know what, this counts as a relevant measure of time or language. Mm -hmm. um, so in this sense, 
something like a day is not a thing like a coffee cup, but a thing that is the product of accumulated, accumulated knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, but since we use this conceptual thing called a day every single day, um, we treat it as if it was super real, as just a regular coffee cup that sits on our table. Um, we don't have to think about history or science or measurement or knowledge production. It's just a regular coffee cup. So the trick is how can we make sure that we don't treat language and race like a coffee cup, mm. but as part of an ongoing process of knowledge production, mm. you know, created in real time from one word to the next, from conversation to conversation. Um, same goes for, you know, the so-called academic language or standard language. That is not a coffee cup either. That is also a historical invention that emerges from histories of colonialism, of racism. Um, when we claim to teach academic language, we make it real in that moment, in that conversation. Um, when we tell students, you know, leave your language, leave your home language at home, um, it we're treating language as though it is possible to leave a coffee cup at home. Mm. You know, when when it's just it's not possible. On top of that, um, when we deploy this idea of standard academic language as separate from home language, um, not only do we position all that part of a student's linguistic register as non-standard, we're engaging in the active ongoing process of substandardizing those practices. Mm. We're indirectly saying Yes, that language thing is valuable, but it's not academic. It's not, vi- it's not viable as a skill to get a job someday, um, which is just a really gentle way of saying your home language is inferior. Mm. Um, very so, subtle way. Of the- yeah, yeah, yeah. Or not um, so, so subtle. <laughs> very, very indirect. Yeah, it, it's both direct and indirect. You know, and and to me, the my favorite way to honor um, home languages is to resist these brute dichotomies, the, that rearticulation of standard versus substandard. And when we teach for, let's say, a state examination, we should remind our kids that, you know, standard language can be a source of individual mobility, maybe individual economic relief. But what about our communities? What has standard languages ever done for our communities? And if we aren't careful, um, you know, us as racialized populations, I identify as Mexican, Mexican Mexican-American, Latinx, Latino. Um, If we're not careful, we can unwittingly perpetuate the marginalization of our own people because we accidentally adopt this idea that standard language is better than our community language. Mm -hmm. You know, language has power. The language is backed by people in power. And it has really... It has real effects on the world. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So real consequences. Uh, yeah. When you when you so that that does manifest itself in those practices when you like you said adhere to that that standard and that's the only leave your language at home that is so mm-hmm. detrimental and uh, rooted in some some racist practices like you uh, like you said it's not a sta- oh, yeah. the standard who's creating the standard right and I think a lot of times you know and I'm I'm using Spanish here because um, that's what I teach, uh, and that's kind of the world I move in. But a lot of a lot of Spanish teachers defer um, to the RAE, and like that's the gold standard for this. And um, 
I think you made an important point when you're like, well, you know, standard language can be a source of mobility, but in the context of community, that's an important part um, that you said that I think is important. What has it done other than marginalize uh, a great swath of the population, right? Absolutely. Um, so teachers yeah. in their practices and their pedagogies and their content really need to examine that. So kind of leads uh, into another video uh, where you speak about words affecting context when discussing mock Spanish in your video titled Language, Race, and White Public Space, specifically the concepts of inner sphere and outer sphere. Uh, you may have to you may have to define that a little bit. Uh, and the racialization and policing, racialization, racialization and policing of bilingual language practices. I wanted to repeat that part um, in public spaces, explaining that to our listeners, right? Because I think it's an, it's important for folks to understand this disparity and some of the implications for our bilingual students, right? Because for me as a white man, uh, uh, identify as a white man, I move in white spaces. I'm not one of these white guys, even though um, uh, I can identify I have indigenous blood and I can prove that and show that. But man, I'm a white dude. I move in white spaces. I benefit. Mm. I benefit from the complexion of my skin. So that's where I identify. But um, my learned language, my L2, Spanish, uh, is seen as an asset, right? That cosmopolitan that you mentioned in your vid videos. Um, and those native speakers of the language, the same language that I learned and have a degree in, right, are perceived as being a threat, right? And, uh, and you touch on that in that video. So my question, after that long-winded discourse, how do you think whiteness, Eurocentric, uh, is perpetuated by non-native maybe or and native Spanish language teachers that may not be aware of these racialized stereotypes. That's to say, how are these stereotypes perpetuated through our language practices, right? Is it through the perpetuation, as we mentioned earlier, of standardized language practices and notions? Is it through stereotype celebrations that create a safe white space for themselves and their students? Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of things to unpack there. I guess we should start with um, right. what racialization is. Right. Um, because um, a lot of these, or all these questions are kind of come back to this. Come, um, exactly. So uh, I guess a simple definition would be the historical process by which difference is framed as deviant and inferior. So when we talk about standard language being standard, Right. We are literally defining the norm, hmm. which again gives rise to blunt dichotomies. Um, and a lot of the times that is where stereotypes live in these dichotomies. Uh, it's very easy to conflate a so-called correct grammar with standard language. And we end up implying everything else is hierarchically positioned below this so-called correct language, mm. the so-called standard language. Mm. And so if Spanish teachers, for example, are constantly correcting students in a way that's damaging or traumatic, it sends the message to students that their language is deficient, that they are deficient. And then right there, whether the teacher realizes it or not or intends to or not, 
they have reproduced the stereotype that racialized students are inherently deficient when it comes to things like grammar. So these stereotypes don't have to be like, you know, literally uh, referring to Mexicans in hats with tequila bottles. Uh, these stereotypes could be reinforced in a whole lot of ways, including by, let's say, their classmates. And then unfortunately, you know, when a student has just been broken down over time, over years and years of being corrected, uh, it's easy to start thinking, well, maybe my Spanish just isn't good. Maybe I should just give up trying to learn mm. this correct Spanish because I obviously don't, uh, you know, I, I, I can't which is something I felt growing up. Wow. Um, just like, I, I just need to, I need to give up because it's just not working out. Or you know? it perpetuates and, a shame of, of yes. using the language that you have, right? So, yes. And that, yeah. Continue. Yeah, somebody I talked to actually called it linguistic shame. I thought it was a really interesting, I, I don't know uh, where they got that from or if they made it up on the spot, but I just, it's something I've always, I've always kind of thought of. Right. You know, and, um, this particular place is, uh, uh, this particular person uh, comes from the place that I do my research. So, so I study my stuff in deep South Texas. 90% of the population is of Mexican heritage. We just call ourselves Mexicans, Mexican-Americans. That's the lingo. We don't really use Latin getting at. Um, so I'm from there, but because it's 90% Mexican heritage, whiteness very much or less often takes the form of white bodies. Um, and it's, it more takes the form of white knowledge. Mm, and that's and, important. Yeah. Yeah. Because you don't need the actual white body, body. there enforcing um, white knowledge. So, I many, think, um, so many white people don't understand that, dude. That's yeah. important that you mentioned. Like you don't need a white body to perpetuate whiteness. Yes, exactly. Continue. Yeah, white bodies is not does not always equal whiteness. We're not talking about the same thing all the time. Right. <laughs> um, so local theorist, Medico Paredes, I, he called this gringo knowledge or something like that. It, it, something funny, gringo knowledge, gringo world or something like that. Um, and it's just it's basically the common sense, the white common sense idea that Mexicans can't speak English or Spanish correctly. Mm. And there, I mean, don't get me wrong. There's definitely white teachers that come down and teach, teach to the region, but the vast majority of the schooling is done by lifelong residents to the area. But that deficiency perspective, uh, that idea that Mexicans are deficient is alive and well, even within our own population, in, within our own Spanish speaking teachers mm. or Spanish teachers. Um, it just continues to be a part of the colonial residue that we struggle against. Um, mm. So, so yeah, you know, we use Spanglish, we use Tex-Mex, we use uh, inverted Spanglish, um, in, anything you want to call it. Um, but part of the struggle is convincing ourselves that those those are legitimate linguistic practices, and there's no point in trying to correct something that was never, ever, ever incorrect in the first place. Mm. And, you know, as, as far as celebrations of culture, I, I mean, they feel good. They look good. Uh, it's nice for schools to celebrate Black History Month for like one day of the month, first Monday, you know. Uh, 
But yeah. ultimately, at the institutional level, I would say a lot of times celebratory talk is cheap. Facts. And where where is the real work happening at the institutional level? Celebrating Black History Month, uh, you know, on the first day of the month or one day out of the month, that does not address anti-blackness explicitly. Or just one month. Yeah, or just one month. Right, exactly. you get one month, we're going to do this. I've downloaded some stuff from TPT. I got some lessons. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about surface culture, and I've done mm-hmm. my service to the black community. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, you, you know, uh, I mean, don't don't get me wrong. I, th- I guess that sounds a little negative. Uh, you know, celebrations are, are are good, and they feel good, and it feels good to be affirmed especially within our own communities. And we do celebrate things like that in South Texas. Um, But it just feels different when it's, you know, 90% Mexican kids in there celebrating versus like, uh, oh, let's celebrate Black History Month um, on this one day. Like, it just doesn't feel like enough. It's authentic. Um, It's not authentic. Yeah. Yeah, it it, it, it just feels like a surface level celebration, you know. I did I did some podcasts uh, a while back, some earlier last year on that called Beyond Febrero, where we use incorporate Afro Latino history all mm. around. And there were some beautiful women that that spoke on that and what they do in their classroom. And it's just important, man. These aren't these aren't to me as a language teacher just things that you know. It's not a unit. You know what I mean? It's not a lesson. It's it's incorporating that. And pushing back against those ideologies and those standards, not only in culture but language, right? And uh, mm-hmm. all year, mm-hmm. all year, every day, all day, every day, right? How can you, whatever you're doing, incorporate that into your lessons now, right? Right, right. Yeah, I, I mean, because when you just be, when you do it for that one day, you, I mean, that is almost the definition of tokenizing something. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. So you know. I kind of you touched on it a little bit, but I always wanted I wanted to touch on the, the Jonathan Rosa, uh, where he describes in one of your videos inverted Spanish. You you briefly mentioned it. Um, you stated also in your video titled uh, "From Mock Spanish to Inverted Spanish." It's super interesting to me, where students that use this inverted Spanish from Latinx populations signal something entirely different. Like, for one, it highlights a shared identity with distance from whiteness. And two, while signaling signaling an English language dexterity while displaying an insider knowledge of Spanish. Because as you say, Spanish is perceived differently depending upon which body it is coming from. I want to repeat that because it's important. Spanish is perceived differently depending upon which body it's coming from. Right. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. see I see myself where some uh, language educators that have heritage Spanish students in their classrooms, they may perceive this is an issue with the use of this type of mock Spanish language, this um, index inverted language. Right. Um, so you want to you want to I don't really have a question here as much as it just interested me in that that idea of inverted Spanish and what it yeah. means, because we have these students in our classrooms. You may as a listener have these students in your classrooms. So you want to touch on yeah. that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think uh, Jonathan Rosa made a really awesome theoretical in, uh, intervention here. Um, 
Because it, it was a question that I had about myself when I first read Jane Hill's work on mock Spanish. Because um, according to Jane Hill, uh, she was mainly talking about indirectly elevating white monolingual speakers. Uh, but when I used this register called, or it's not really a register, it's more of a collection of of Spanish words. When I use mock Spanish words, or when I did it with my friends, it never felt like we were elevating white monolingualism. Right. Um, it felt like we were, you know, making fun of our parents or our grandparents. Um, sometimes it was making fun of white people. Right. Um, a lot of times it was mocking mock Spanish users. Exactly. Um, so Rosa called these practices something more akin to an inverted Spanglish, um, a different register of this so-called mock Spanish, um, something that is rooted in context. And by that, I mean, um, for example, when Donald Trump speaks of drug lords as bad hombres, mm. um, that is very different from me saying my favorite white male photographer is a bad hombre. It, it's, it has different effects on the world. Mm -hmm. One produces negative racial stereotypes, mm -hmm. but when I use it in that context, um, it may or may not deploy, uh, you know, negative stereotypical uh, ideas. Um, it just depends. It will more so depend on who's listening to me talk and where that conversation about my favorite photographer is happening. So it was a very inter inter interesting um, intervention he made, just basically saying like, mock Spanish, yes, it elevates whiteness, um, but it's also racializing a very specific American Latinx community. It's mm -hmm. not doing the same racializing work uh, on people, for example, from Spain or a light-skinned person from Argentina or something. He, there's, there's, the context matters and the person speaking matters. The body matters. The body You matters. know, ev everybody gets racialized differently at different, different levels too, different levels of intensity. Well, it's like I said earlier, like, I'm, you know, I can speak Spanish anywhere I want. And I'm like, oh, my God, you're so smart. You know another language? And I'm like, oh, yeah, get the f out my face. And, uh, you know, <laughs> so it's like, like that's that sort of thing. Like it just rubs me the wrong way. So, yes, the body matters and we are racialized in different ways, all of us. Mm -hmm. So it's like you, you think like nonchalantly joking, like, oh, it's no bueno. You know, it's like. It's different because I see this in my in my heritage students. They're they're able to do this in inverted Spanish, um, uh, in their. I see it amongst themselves. Like I don't necessarily interact. I don't have to interact. I can just be an observer and listen and hear um, while they're doing it. Uh, exactly what Rosa outlines in his book. The examples he provides. By the way, that book is called "Looking Like a Language, Sounding Like a Race." I highly recommend you buy it and uh, and uh, read it. Um, oh, yeah. but those examples, I, I see it and hear it and I understand it. I have a keen awareness. I, it, to me, it's not offensive. I, I get that it's sort of a, the inside joke, right? You, it's in the context. It is contextual. It is different, right? Mm -hmm. For those students. So, and it's important for educators to remember that may hear that and think it's, oh, it's cool to say something like no bueno or, uh, pendejo or, you know, whatever. <laughs> 
some of the examples you also provide in your uh, in your video on the same topic. It's it was just fascinating to me because it's one of those things that it's so pervasive in our culture, especially for Americans. They just they do that like it's cool, right? Either mm -hmm. wittingly or unwittingly. You just walk around. You know, I can't tell you how many times a day I hear "No bueno, man." You know, somebody yeah. posts on Twitter or Facebook. Oh, this 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 this. That's a no bueno, and you're just like, dude. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. It's it's cringe. It's cringeworthy, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so I would I'd recommend my listeners check that out. It's it's really it's really interesting um, video. So this sort of moves us toward language practices and translanguaging, right? So you mm -hmm. state in one of your videos on translanguaging that a named language is a social construct, right? And you touched on this a little bit earlier. And you discuss ways in which teachers assess students on language competency. They just assume, like when they do this, they just assume that a language has always existed and that there's a neutral way to measure competence. This is fascinating, mm -hmm. right? You may want to do a quick definition of, you know, code switching and translanguaging, um, but also speak briefly about how English-Spanish speakers and black kids were deemed retarded, not my word, because of how these tests were administered. And so my question is, out of all that, right? So you may want to do those definitions, but in <laughs> that little... I should have written that down. You should have written, written that down. That down. <laughs> um, just, you know, you may want to provide a brief definition of uh, translanguaging, right, for these folks. Mm -hmm. But definitely want you to discuss that, that, um, that, that assessment, that normalized assessment that... Uh, kids were deemed retarded because of how the tests were. I found that fascinating. So mm -hmm. after that, how can we as educators move toward translanguaging practices where, as you say, we are not separating two distinct languages, but taking the insider's perspective to language practices? Because as you say, beliefs about language impact our beliefs about race. Yes, absolutely. And vice versa. Our beliefs about race impact our beliefs about, about language. language. Yep. Um, yeah. So, so this is the it, this is interesting. I am a student of uh, Ophelia Garcia, which, who is kind of um, uh, she really really advanced this notion of translanguaging, um, and really translanguaging comes out in the practice of uh, speaking and using language. Uh, itself, which is why the languaging part uh, is a verb. Um, so I'm going to talk about translanguaging um, through a little story that I have teaching high school. Um, so first off, this is, even though I do a lot of work on trans, you know, talking about it as theory, uh, this is not my expertise because I haven't taught in a few years. Right. You know, I, it's been like, I, I think like 15 years or something since I taught high school. Um, and I taught before I even knew about translanguaging. Right. So, so I never had firsthand experience explicitly using a translanguaging stance in the classroom. Right. Um, and I didn't think about myself as doing translanguaging work. But I can tell you what I did as a high school teacher that kind of resembles the translanguaging stance. Um, which is very different from code switching. Right. Um, so I taught in a school where about, I don't know, half our students or so don't have social social security numbers. And a lot of them are from right across the border. 
the the Texas Mexico border is actually I don't know like five minute like a five minute drive away from the school. Um, a lot of the students in uh, here at this school that I taught at felt very uncomfortable to, uh, speaking English, you know, understandably. So at the time, I, re- I still remember this one student that kind of got this ball rolling. Um, I was talking to him and I said, hey, dude, I'm trying to learn music terminology in Spanish because, you know, I taught classical guitar in high school. Um, can you help me out? When I'm having trouble finding a word or to or a translation to some kind of uh, musical term that I was looking for at the time, um, and I'll help you out with your English um, if you want, no pressure. Uh, after a while, it became like this game that we played in front of the class, and more students got in on it, and they started debating on what would be a better way to say some particular music phrase, um, and we talked about. You know, one way, uh, one way it could be said, you know, in this part of Mexico versus that part of Mexico versus across the border over here in the United States. Um, when parents' night came, the parents knew I was relearning Spanish. And the students would help me along. Um, and then parents who didn't know very much English would mix in English words for me because they saw I was trying. I was trying to speak to them in Spanish. Mm. And the point became to communicate about the student and, and, and their progress in class. And it almost got rid of the hierarchical relationship between teacher and parent or teacher and student. Um, it had like a, a leveling effect. There was this agreement between us that um, we're trying to communicate first and foremost, and we are going to use everything that we know. I'm using all the Spanish that I know, and if trouble uh, with a word, it's okay. They would use all the English they knew uh, to help me along. So I knew that me speaking to them in Spanish, knowing the Mexican culture of the community, where I'm from, um, I knew I was showing respect to them by trying mm-hmm. and trying, you know, effing hard. Right. You know, and everybody was moving towards the goal of comprehending the topic at the time, which was the student's progress. And it became less so about individual words or phrases or grammar. Um, that while it was a, gave me trouble, you know, that hierarchical relationship was not there anymore. And that hierarchy kind of exists when we're talking about code switching. We know, because I could have very easily said, um, I don't know Spanish enough to even try. And this is a school in the United States, so they should try to come over to quite literally my side of the linguistic border mm. and 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 talk to me and it's really this it's really the translanguaging stance that addresses and tries to remedy hierarchies in the moment while code switching just kind of doesn't do that it's just it, it, it kind of just glosses over that part it's like so an to either me that, or right right yeah. it it's to me that's what translanguaging means and also that's just 
a random way of incorporating translanguaging in a music classroom of all, of all places. It doesn't have to be a language class. It doesn't have to be a Spanish class, an English class. Um, whatever your, your particular specialty is, you, it's about creating a space to learn and to feel proud learning. So um, without the hierarchy, right? Without the hierarchy and uh, honoring the full linguistic repertoire that your students, right, bring into the classroom, right. or that the parents that you're dealing with, right? Um, so it, it's moving beyond an either or. We're going to do this, like you said, the ideology perspective of like, uh, well, um, we all speak uh, English here. This is an American high school. Hello. You know, and just dumping mm -hmm. that and finding ways to communicate in that moment, right, specifically. Right. Um, so, yeah, for me as a, as a language teacher, uh, giving, giving my students ways to, to really tap in and honor what they bring into the classroom is validating uh, for them. It is centering their experiences and what they bring into the classroom. And it goes mm -hmm. a long way when you, you know, when you want to talk about teaching academic language, right? Um, for me, it's not an either or. It's not like you can get this academic language and we can get your, uh, what you bring into the classroom, right? Because that's right. valid. It's no less valid than this academic language we're about to get up on, right? There's right. no, for me, there's no, that don't distinguish the two because I mm -hmm. honor both. And it's about honoring. And to mm -hmm. honor something, it's, it's perspective. And right. Mm -hmm. And a lot of educators don't have perspective when it comes to thinking about honoring practices, right? A lot of our uh, pedagogy tends to be teacher centered. You know, when, right. we, when we decenter ourselves and thinking about translanguaging, um, it's complicated, man. Actually, it's not complicated. It's it's complicated for those folks who need a, a shift in perspective, right? Yes. Um, yeah, because so, you're dealing with very basic beliefs about language, there, right? You know, and and it's it's hard. It's it's very political, and that's part of the the magic of standard language is it appears to be apolitical when it's right. it's it, not. It, it's a historical, political, racial invention. I don't see color. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Just all my students, and I think Rosa talks, backing up a little bit in that chapter that we mentioned earlier from Rosa's book, um, the students uh, experience that sort of thing where um, there's no distinguished difference between Mexican and Puerto Rican, right? And mm -hmm. so delineating those sort of things um but that colorblind ideology is problematic we could do a whole podcast on that right but oh, I don't even get me started <laughs> or actually get, get me get me started get, get him started, started. <laughs> get his, i'm gonna hold that for another podcast because i'm gonna call <laughs> on you again um but i do want you to mention that that um because you mentioned it in your video and, and and folks can go back and listen to it but i want you to briefly mention it here for those that may not find that video about that um that test that were students that were deemed retarded if you can remember that off the top of your head. If not, it's okay. We'll move on. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's been a while since I've touched on, on that research. Um, but the very, and I'll, and I'll give you an example from where I'm doing my research too. Um, in the university that I'm working with um, or that I have participants from, um, there was this thing called the speech test at this university, at the uh, University of Texas um, kind of mandatory speech test that just uh, tested Mexicans 
Um, and the idea was, let's get them to speak out loud and to a white administrator of this university and and um, basically it was deciding, oh, you know what? This person sounds like they need their accent fixed, mm-hmm. which, you know, implying is their language practices are broken. And where did, where did that come from? And it's basically the deficiency perspective rearticulated in this, in this university moment. And what's the deficiency perspective? It's exactly the idea that, you know, Mexicans, Mexican-Americans, but, you know, black kids too, they are deficient mentally. And a lot of times saying like, oh, their language practices are deficient. Not, not them, not them as a whole. It's just their language practices. Um, that would give political cover to allow schools and administrators and, and education policy to define these students as retarded. Right. The, the, the word retarded. That retarded. Would, that would surface. Yeah. Um, now it's a little more friendly, you know. Now we now we say like, uh, you, you know, they're deficient speakers or, right. or they're limited or whatever. But I mean, to be clear, those those categories are from the same history, and you know, even though it sounds friendlier today, it's still it's analogous. Yeah, yeah, it's analogous to those to those really old, more blunt way of saying, uh, you know, we. We are questioning your mental capacity because of the way you sound. And this still occurs because, in English language learning classes, right? Those ELL. Oh, yeah. It's like that perpetuation is oof. It's deep. That's another and podcast. It's, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's friendlier now, yeah, which, it's, is, it's which is friendly, dangerous. Friendly language, yeah. right? It's easy. Yeah. Oh, pobrecitos. Mm-hmm. They need that. Mm-hmm. You can't walk around here talking like that. Right. right. Oh, exactly. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man! So, all right, we're getting we're getting to the end here. I want to wrap up this uh, this really good discussion that we could we could go on forever, man. This could be like a twenty hour podcast. Oh yeah. <laughs> so where do you, where do I haven't you, even started yet. Yeah, I haven't even started. This guy's just getting warmed up. <laughs> Part two coming next week, right? Maybe, oh, yeah. maybe I'll. Oh, yeah, maybe we should. <laughs> maybe we should, right? So, where do you Mike see the problems with this perspective? Um, I think you touched on it a little bit, but I want to think about how these these ideologies impact. And you can briefly speak to this before we get to the last question. Um, administrations, maybe even districts, um, mm-hmm. how these policies, how these ideologies become policies and their detrimental effects. If you want to touch on that just briefly. Then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So ad- administration. Um, wow. There's a, there's a lot of things to say about people in power or people in positions of power. Mm-hmm. Something really common that I'm seeing a lot nowadays, and I'm sure you'll, you've seen it too, this very common double movement where administration or language policy writers, um, they'll say, your home language is valuable and it's part of your heritage and your culture and it's beautiful, but leave it at home. <laughs> that's, not, that's not for school. But, you know, yeah, there, there is that blunt dichotomy, once again, surfacing between standard and substandard language practices. And on top of that, it also erases how much culture 
um, how much of the culture of white supremacy is inscribed into so-called standard language practices. Mm. Um, it ignores the fact that standard language itself has been an extraordinarily effective means of domination, mm. of racial domination, of linguistic domination. And ironically, um, what makes it so dangerous is that it's always framed as raceless, right. as ahistorical, as neutral, as color, as uh, apolitical, um, which then brings in that colorblind, that colorblind approach to language and saying, um, oh, the standard language and your home language, they should be treated the same. But in practice, you're telling students, leave the home language at home. So that's something that really annoys me about a lot of these discourses um, or a lot of these conversations that come from administrators. Uh, I mean, to me, it's like, um, you know, no, bro, your so-called language, standard language, academic language is just as cultural, just as political and racializing as any language can be. And you denying that is very dangerous. It's, it, it's dangerous. It, it reproduces so much strife. Um, it reproduces racial domination, racial governance um, at a very real level because it's in our schools. We're teaching this and it's just becoming ingrained as common sense to, mm -hmm. to huge populations all over the place. I mean, including uncommon um, sense. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's a very, very, very good point. Common sense, that idea. Uh, oh. I mean, it, it needs to be framed as white common sense because there you go. People of color can see through that real quick. I mean, I mean, it's 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 not common sense to everybody, or else you wouldn't have the joke. Uh, you know, oh, that's you know, that's white people shit, right? Um, you know that that's where it's because it is. <laughs> yeah, because it is exactly that is not our common sense. That's your common sense. Right. That's your institutional common sense. I'm sorry. Could you reframe that as um, this is your common sense and not mine because uh, I'm out. Right. Exactly. But those policies, yeah, they do. They're in schools and it's like it's up to those teachers that are aware um, of, of the racialized language, right, of the colorblind ideology and language to push back against mm -hmm. uh, their – ELL teachers or anyone that's involved in perpetuating um, these language practices and, and having a deficit lens. It's hard work. There's no easy yeah. way. There's no, there's no like uh, plan that you can download somewhere that's going to be like, you know, I mean, there's <laughs> guidance. There's people that you can read and there's literature out there and somebody may have made a beautiful um, bullet point list of things you could discuss. PowerPoint? A PowerPoint. <laughs> and there may be, and that's cool if you need that, but um, yeah. uh, it's, you know, the onus is on us, you know, that mm -hmm. are aware of these things to really push back. And I push back, you know, all the time. Like, it's not, I mean, you know, you see about, uh, on Twitter a lot of times, uh, if it's social media in general, um, people that are uh, newly coming into anti-racist practices and right, what that means. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. How many perspectives? What can you what what does that mean to you to be anti-racist? And a lot of educators really don't know what that means. And uh, and once they discover uh, the power and the responsibility. 
right? And the things that you have to push back against. We're just talking about one thing that mm-hmm. in this anti-racist perspective and lens to push back against, right? Mm-hmm. There's multiple things to fight uh, against when we think about oppression of uh, marginalized communities, right? Um, oh, yeah. A lot of times it's just the work is too hard, right? It's too hard for people to do when they realize. And me, important for me that I see is educators stop when it starts to impact their bottom line financially, when their, job, mm-hmm. when their jobs are on the line, when uh, when shit hits the fan, so to speak, they yes. pull back. And that's a privilege. That's a luxury that white folks can do. I can choose when I want to fight, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, I don't really have a direct answer to that, but other than the fact that, you know, <laughs> I mean, what do you stand for? Like, I mean... I don't have children, so I don't have to put food in their mouths. But I do know that I've lost over my short 48 years on this earth at least three jobs for standing up against racism. Mm. Right? Mm. Um, so that's where I cash my cards in, my chips yeah. in, so to speak. Um, yeah. So anyway, I went off on a tangent there. <laughs> but you make a valid <laughs> point, man. These, these, I mean, they, they're so pervasive. The language, the you nailed the... You know, you hit the nail on the head with that that colorblind ideology in language, right? Um, mm-hmm. That deficit lens of looking at these students already coming to the school building and your perspective is they're lacking, right? That's your perspective, and that's problematic. So yeah, last question here as we wrap up this discussion, right? Sure um, I want to wrap it up with uh, discussing critical media literacies, right? I'll kind of shift gears here just a slight bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think a definition of what media actually means is in order, and you can you can provide a little um, definition there. So after mm-hmm. watching your video titled "Breaking Up is Hard to Do," media switching and media ideologies, and I have to say, when I looked at "Breaking Up is Hard to Do," and I didn't see the media switching media ideology, I was like, I don't know, I don't know, watch this video, "Breaking Up is Hard to Do." <laughs> okay, but I like that; it pulled me in. I was like, it made me pause and like. This video doesn't seem to fit with all the other stuff he's, but it fits. Trust me. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'm curious. very clever title by the by very the clever original author. Yeah. Just pulling people in. So I'm curious mm-hmm. how we can deconstruct these media ideologies with our students mm-hmm. in the classroom, where we move away from students as passive consumers of media, thinking now digital, um, toward one that shifts some of these dominant media ideologies that they participate in and perpetuate to one of empowerment that moves our students toward liberatory practice, right? Like, mm-hmm. I like to think we need to reimagine concepts ourselves as educators of media literacy and think about how to theorize um, 21st century education um, and how we deal mm-hmm. with media consumption. So how do you see educators, like, going about deconstructing this process and these uh, media literacy because as yeah. you say in the video, the form of the medium shapes the message. Yes, yeah, and then and then entering this this uh, COVID world where we're kind of forced into all of these new mediums now nowadays. Right. right. Um, so so we should we should probably talk about what media means. Yeah. What is um, media? Yeah. So it, many it, people get that confused. You'd be surprised. Yeah. I, it, it's easy to uh, think of it as like TV, for one, um, television, computers, right. digital stuff. 
Um, so it's it's kind of a hard thing to define, but for me, I generally think of media as a collection of particular mediums. So um, just to really objectify it for for the purposes of of us talking here. So like if we think a handwritten note, that's a medium, a text message, that's a medium. Uh, this podcast is another medium. Mm-hmm. And when we think of media, uh, we usually think of mediums associated with digital technology. I, I think that's quickly becomes conflated with each other. Um, but what's important to remember is um, media and mediums come with baggage, come with ideologies. Uh, so, for example, the the PowerPoint presentation is viewed as probably the most authoritative digital medium to teach through. Uh, and that's not an accident. That's That was a very slow historical legitimation of the PowerPoint by educational institutions. Um, and that's fine. Um, so that's how I would, I would probably define media or mediums or working through mediums, I suppose. Right. Now, as far as deconstructing uh, media and their ideologies, their baggage, their ideological baggage that comes with them, when I, when you when you asked this, I was I immediately thought of educational media, educational mediums, um, specifically YouTube and specifically podcasts, um, and knowing what to do with these particular mediums, this particular mm-hmm. form of media. Because I've gotten some weird comments about these academic YouTubes that I do. Um, a lot of people don't see YouTube as really an academic medium, unless it comes with a PowerPoint. Mm. If I have a PowerPoint on the screen, it is suddenly um, academic. Yes. And that's an ideological view. Um, That's okay. I'm not, I'm not bashing PowerPoint that much. I don't, I'm not a fan of them, obviously, but that's just, but that's just because I, you know, it's fascinating to think about like how that validates. And what does that mean that if I pop a PowerPoint up, how did, why does that make my message any more valid? Yeah, yeah. And, and I, work as a, I work as a media consultant with a lot of professors. And that's, that's their first move is um, let's put a PowerPoint in there. And that, that's fine. That's what they know how to do. You know? and, it's, and it's the first time they've been forced to work through digital mediums like Zoom classrooms. You know? Right. Um, but I also think a lot of people are threatened by these new Technologies and rightfully so. Um, a lot of them are threatening to um, to their personal lives, you know. Um, but I always try to remind people when dealing with media ideologies that these ideologies um, are entail normative forces, entail legitimating forces. For example, my YouTube's will never make it onto my CV in the same way that speaking at an academic conference does. Right. Um, but I'll tell you, there are usually like 10 people in the room at conferences when you're speaking. Um, if you're lucky to be put on a panel with a famous person, maybe you got like 50 people in the room. You know, those, that, that's the big time right, right there. Um, like, for example, it took... I've, so I just posted a YouTube today. It's been up for like, I don't know, six hours at this point or something. I've been, I've been presenting on this material for a really long time, maybe like three, four years. 
Um, and it took, you know, money. It took multiple plane rides to go to these conferences, registration fees, hotel fees, conference right. fees. There's a monetary uh, Cost. investment there by a lot of institutional, uh, educational institutions like people who hold conferences. Right. And just in the last, like, I don't know, six hours or so, this last YouTube has been viewed 150 times in the last four hours. Um, so the reach. Yeah, the reach of digital mediums is completely different. You know, um, it will, this one video will likely be viewed thousands of times within this next year or so. And that is threatening to a lot of people because do we need conferences if we have something like YouTube? Um, do we need all of that monetary investment uh, in these types of things? And most importantly uh, to me, my YouTubes are viewed by people that do not attend academic conferences. And that's threatening to, to some people. Um, I mean, the people that I'm aiming for is to go beyond preaching to the choir, go beyond the, the educational institution as it is right now. And my stuff gets watched by people like my mom, like my family, students of color who have never attended academic conferences. Right. And the pandemic, the reality of the pandemic is a lot of people are being forced into these digital mediums that they're not comfortable with. And that's real. But so the video... A, so there's yeah, a power shifting going on there is what you're saying. And I think for teachers um, in the classroom, thinking about critical media literacy... Mm -hmm. That's really the pedagogy, right? It's not necessarily just incorporating YouTube or a podcast or Ed Puzzle, whatever, and mm -hmm. uh, having them just do it because it's cool, it's shiny, right? But it's really uh, pushing them to shift power dynamics, right, and and toward liberatory practices for these marginalized groups, like mm -hmm. as an outlet, right? As opposed to just like, today we're going to use um, YouTube, you're going to make a video, uh, conjugating verbs, whatever. I don't know, like something yeah. just basic, right? As opposed yeah. to being a critical media literacy, that literacy right. part of media. You're saying the power of your six your video that's been up for six hours as of this podcast um, already has a hundred and some views, Right, as opposed to the three years of presenting the material at a at a cost, right? Yeah. So, is it shifting? Right, those dynamics. Yeah, exactly, and then and that's and it's concerning in a lot of ways. Um, some ways I'm hopeful uh, for, like for example, um, will we see a mass exodus of older white men professors that just do not like teaching on Zoom? And I'm going to bet that probably. And is that a good thing or a bad thing? I mean, I kind of would think it's a good thing. Um, make space for the newer scholars to come up and take those places that they've been reserving for themselves mm. for decades. Mm. Um, there's going to be a shift in the power dynamics just through this shift in media. At the same time, you know, now... Individual professors can have Zoom rooms of 150, 200, 300 students. What is that supposed? To, what kind of quality education is that supposed to um, actually represent when there's 300 in a Zoom room? Like, yeah, there was, there is, and exists in person 300 person lecture rooms, um, 
But are those 300-person Zoom rooms going to become the norm? And does that mean we don't have to invest in buildings anymore to actually house students? Uh, because, uh, you know, a lot of students use the school as a place to connect with other you we're know, social um, creatures. Well, you know, we're so you're you're talking about something now. This whole shift in technology with COVID and what what has happened. So that's like, again, that could totally be another podcast picking apart <laughs> picking apart that part of uh, of how technology is shifting. But for for this purpose here, you know, I think these me- media literacies are important for educators to consider in their Absolutely. classrooms how they're consuming what they're consuming and we can't just assume because students come into our class as the you to use that term that i really don't like that much digital natives um they come into the classroom like oh they already know this no but critically right what does that mean to go beyond to critically reflect to shift um like a paradigm shift in kind of how we use these these uh these outlets for empower- for empowerment. Yeah. So absolutely. Yeah. Well, yeah. Mike, it's been a great conversation. Oh yeah, man. I feel Thanks like for having me. We're at the one hour mark, but I feel like we could go to like the the twenty hour mark and still not cover all of yeah, this stuff. Yeah, I, I we went deep, but um there there's plenty of room there too. Yeah, to explore all of this stuff at like twenty more different levels. At you know? twenty more, di- well, <laughs> maybe we'll have twenty more different podcasts. Yeah, maybe we should. Maybe we should just have a whole new podcast. <laughs> so, I want to encourage everyone listening to this podcast to go check out Mike's uh, YouTube channel. It truly is amazing, educational, informative, powerful. So, thanks, Mike. Thanks, man. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks a lot, man. And you're listening to What in the World.